1 Peter 2, 9-12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekend services here at Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you have chosen to spend some time with us, whether you're here with me in the West service, over watching in our East service or online. Thanks for being with us. Uh, I am really excited about where we are right now as a church, not just in a big picture, but, but literally kind of in this moment. I don't know if you have noticed or not, but this is really a season in which we as a church are pushing ourselves to grow. There are a lot of opportunities to grow. This is a season of growth for us as a church. I don't mean numerically in attendance. I mean to grow in our understanding of God, to grow in our understanding of what it means to be in relationship with him and to follow him through Jesus. This is happening in countless ways at our church. One example is the prayer journal. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you guys are participating with us in the prayer journal? Awesome. Hey, I just to encourage you that you are joining over 1,200 people in praying through the Lord's Prayer every week. Isn't that amazing? 1,200 people praying together every day in the same direction. Two weeks ago, we launched Wednesday night growth opportunities. Over 200 people are in Bible studies, in classes, trying to learn more about what it means to, to believe that God loves you and to live out that love. And then finally, next week, beginning next week, we're starting a 10-week sermon series going through the book of Romans. And if you've ever read Romans, you know that's going to challenge us and that's going to push us to grow. It is a season of growth. And I can't wait to see what God does in your life and in mine and in our lives together as a church. But just from a pastoral perspective, since all that is going on, since we're in a season of growth, I wanted to kind of hit pause on sermon series for right now and take a week to talk about growth to make sure that we understand why we're growing and what it means to grow and the importance of it so that we're not just doing things without understanding the why. And so that's the goal of this week's message is to talk about why it's so vital that we grow. And so the first step in that is gonna be if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, that you would pull it out and open it to, to 1 Peter chapter two. 1 Peter chapter two. If you wanna pull out your phone, open up the Bible app, you're watching online, click open that browser, open up the Bible to 1 Peter chapter two. And as you're turning there, let me hold out an outline to you, three points I wanna to use to kind of help us to think about growth and the season of growth that we are in. Three points and they go like this. What is Christian growth? What is Christian growth? Number two, why does it matter? And number three, how does it happen? Okay, what is Christian growth? Why does it matter? And how does it happen? All right, let's start with the first one. What is Christian growth? 
Let me just own at the outset that this sermon is going to aim in a large way at Christians, that this sermon is designed to help Christians think well about Christian growth. I would never want you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're watching, you're not a Christian, I would never want you to feel left out. So for you, you might consider this a glimpse into what the Christian life is all about. If you were to become a follower of Jesus, what kind of life should you expect to live? And you can listen in in that way. But if you are a Christian, I wonder what you think of when I say, what is Christian growth? Now, I grew up in the church. I've been pastoring now for 15 years. I've been around in the church for a long time. In my personal experience, having been a part of a lot of different churches, there are two primary ways that American Christianity answers the question, what is Christian growth? And I bet you're going to resonate with these when I say them. The first is that Christian growth means knowing more that what it means to grow is it means to know more, to know more about the Bible, to know more about God, to know more theology, to know more of what God wants for you. It means to grow in your intellectual knowledge of the Christian faith. We have Bible studies that aim at this, classes that aim at this, people go to seminary for this. The idea is if someone asks you, are you growing? That the way you answer that is, yes, I'm learning, or no, I haven't been learning enough. Growth is knowing more. Another approach to growth is to say that growth is doing more. That growth is not about what you know, it's about what you do. And so to grow as a Christian means to obey more, to do things you formerly were not doing, or to stop doing things that you formerly were doing that you shouldn't have been doing. And so when someone says, are you growing? Your answer is contingent upon whether you can look back in the recent past and say, yes, I have recently started things that I wasn't doing or stopped things that I was doing. To grow means to do. Now, it is interesting that biblically speaking, certainly growing as a Christian is going to involve knowing and doing. But I do not think either of those are fundamentally what the Bible has in mind when it thinks about or talks about what it means to grow as a Christian. One of the ways we know that is what Peter says here in 1 Peter. Now, Peter is writing to a group of Christians that have been scattered. If you remember in the book of Acts chapter 2, Peter gives a sermon, 3,000 people become Christians. It is the first megachurch, if you will, and they're all kind of gathered together and they're, they're loving each other and they're doing life together and it's really terrific. But in Acts chapter 8 and 9, persecution comes and the result of persecution is that they're scattered throughout the known world. And so Peter is not writing now to a group of Christians living in the comfort of a large church. He is writing to Christians who are scattered, living in the larger culture, but trying to hold on to their Christian faith. That's why if you read 1 Peter, he is relentlessly comparing. Hey, here's how you live if you're not a Christian. Here's how you live if you are. Here's what the non-Christian culture looks like. Here is what the Christian culture looks like. He's trying to help them figure out what it means to follow Jesus in the midst of the larger culture. So that if you have a Bible, you can see right before our passage, he's been talking about people who are not Christians. He's going to keep ping-ponging back and forth. But in verse 9, he turns his attention to the people he's writing to, and he says this, but you, but you. So they do this, but 
you. And he's going to talk about Christian growth. So you would expect is that he would say, but you are taking theology classes, but you are in a Bible study, but you are growing in your knowing, but you are doing more, but you are stopping doing the things you shouldn't do. You expect him to say, but you are knowing, but you are doing, but that isn't what he says. Look at what he does say, verse nine, but you are, do you see that? Not no, not do, not, but you are. In other words, for Peter, he says, what I want to talk to you about is not knowing or doing. I want to talk to you about your identity. I don't want to talk to you about knowing or doing. I want to talk to you about being. I don't want to talk to you about accomplishing or earning or achieving or trying hard. I want to talk to you about who you already are and what you already have. He says, they are like this, but you are, look at what he says, verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own Possession. In other words, Peter says, listen, the Christian life is not fundamentally about you and me and what we do. The Christian life is fundamentally about who we are because of what God has already done. So before I talk to you about knowing or doing or working or, or any of that, I want to talk to you about who you already are because God loves you so much. He sent his son for you. And his son lived in your place and died in your place and rose from the dead. And you have believed that. And because of that, here's what God says is true of you. Not what will be true, but you are a chosen nation, a holy priesthood, a a, a royal people, a people for his own possession. In other words, Christian growth is not fundamentally about knowing or doing. It's about identity. It's about discovering what God says is true of you, of what God says is available to you, of what, of who God says you are. And the reason this is so important is because fundamentally the most shaping influence in your life is not what you know and it's not what you do. It's what you believe about yourself. The story you believe about yourself, the inner monologue you have about yourself, the voice in your head, your identity. Let me just share with you two quick examples of this just from my own life. You know recently that I've started to pick up the game of golf. I should really put it back down, but I haven't yet. I've picked it up. And you know, I, I, one of the things I love about golf is that when you go to play golf, a lot of times you're with people that you want to spend time with and, and you're going to be out there for three or four, or in my case, eight or nine hours, right? Playing. And you're going to spend a lot of time together. And, and, but sometimes, even though golf is kind of a contained game, these are the guys I'm playing with. I'm not really playing with anybody else. Sometimes the pace of play on the course can, can slow down. And so what ends up happening is you're getting ready to, to take a shot from the tee box And there are spectators. There are groups behind you who are going to watch you swing, right? And the other day I was playing golf with a guy and and there were three carts behind us. Not because, just for the record, not because we were playing slow, okay? But because the groups in front of us were. And so there were three golf carts full of people watching us play. And he looked at me and he said, I love it when people are watching. And he stepped up to the ball and he ripped like a 310 yard drive right down the fairway. It was so beautiful in sound and appeal that everyone around goes, whoa. 
And they were mesmerized, so mesmerized that they were still looking at the tee box when I got up to swing. And I said to him, I hate it when people are watching. And I shanked it like 17 yards to the right. (laughs) Now here's the thing, I, I, I am working at my golf game and I'm getting better. And when I go to the driving range, I never shank it 17 yards to the right. Why did I then? Not because I don't know how to swing and not because I haven't done it a million times before, but because deep down, here's what was going on. He believes he's a good golfer. So when people are watching, he says, what an opportunity for the real me to be on display. I know I'm not a real golfer. So when people are watching, I think they will know I should never have come here. (laughs) And our identity becomes reality. Now that's a funny scenario. Let me give you a different one. I told you that in January, I entered into counseling. I was really struggling with some things that were going on uh, in, in my larger life. And, and when I went into counseling, I actually took a couple of the people I work with with me and my wife. I wanted it to be a group thing because I wanted them to know where I'm struggling and what's going on in my life. I want to be known. I want to be loved. So I invited them into the process. And one of the things my counselor did is he asked the people I work with to describe who I am at work. Now, some of this is going to unfortunately resonate with you. And, and the picture they painted was, you know, Zach works very hard. He gets a lot done, but he's not very social at work. You know, he moves up and down the hallway very fast. You almost don't want to interrupt him. You don't want to stop him because you get the impression he's very busy. He crosses his arms a lot. His, his foot and leg are pumping in meetings. You can tell he just wants to get to the next meeting. He's bored with this. He's kind of standoffish. His door is closed all the time. When they were describing me, I thought, number one, this guy sounds like a real jerk. And number two, what an accurate description of me. But then my counselor did something powerful. He, he turned to my wife, and, who was horrified, by the way, and he said to her, is this who Zach is at home? And she said, oh my goodness, no. At home, he's the life of the party. He's picking up the kids and playing with them. He's walking down the hallway singing songs. He's telling jokes. He, he's just, he's free and he never does any work. He's never in a hurry. He's never, never busy. He's never, he's just, he's there for us. And the people I work with were like, boy, sounds like a nice guy. We should hire him. <laughs> but listen, do you know the, what the difference is? I'll just be honest with you for a minute. At work, I'm not always sure what my identity is. I'm not sure if people like me. If I stop them in the hallway, would they want to talk to me? Here's what I do know. I will have value at work if I get a lot of stuff done. So that's what I do. But at home, I know my kids love me. I know my wife loves me. I know I don't have to earn anything. And so who am I? I'm my true self. The difference in those two settings is not that I know more or know less, or do more, or do less. It's what I believe about myself. Peter says that Christian growth is about this. It's exchanging the monologue you brought into the faith, your mother's voice, your father's voice, the culture's voice, your family's voice, your own voice, the voice of your past, the voice of your story, the voice of your mistakes. It's exchanging that story and picking up a different voice, the voice of God. And here's what God says. You are a chosen race. 
You are a royal priesthood. You are a people for my own possession. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. That is your identity. It's already yours, but as we know, we have a lot of voices in our head, and growth becomes the process of shedding those and picking up his and living out the new identity we've been given in Jesus. So that actually knowing or doing, which are indispensable parts of growing, can never be the first point because it is possible that you would know more theology and you would do more things, but you would never actually give up the voice in your head. Christian growth is about grabbing hold of the voice of God and letting him shout out all the other voices. You can see this, by the way, in verse 11. Look what it says there. He's getting ready to give them a do. If you, you can skip ahead and see that he's going to say, you need to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. But look, before he says that, first he says, remember, this is your identity. Do you see what he says? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as people whose identity is not in this world, as people whose fundamental self-conception is not the family you come from or the neighborhood you live in or the career you have or any of those things, but as people whose fundamental self-conception is what God says about you, live a particular way. Listen, Christian growth, I, hear me, Bible studies are an indispensable part of growing in the faith. I'm so glad we have so many amazing Bible studies here. Circles are an indispensable part of growing in your faith. I'm so glad we have them. Accountability partners are an indispensable part of growing in your faith, but only in so much as their primary goal is not saying to you know more or do more, but rather saying to you believe all the more that what God says about you is actually what's true of you. Because until your identity shifts, growth can't really happen. But when identity does shift, growth will happen. When you stop thinking of yourself as just a father, but you start saying, I'm a steward of children that God has given to me. Therefore, what's most important is not that they're good at sports or that they have nice clothes or drive nice cars or that I say yes to them. What's most important is that I point them relentlessly to God. It is that identity that's gonna shape you. Until you begin to say, we're not just a, a, a couple that loves each other and express that love through marriage, but we are a display of the relationship between Christ and the church. Therefore, what's most important is not that we Instagram all the cool trips we go on, but that our neighbors and our community see us love and forgive and enjoy what the gospel shapes in our marriage. Until you begin to say, I'm not just a money manager, but I'm a steward of the resources that God has given me, you will never avoid the selfishness of, of saving or of materialism. But when you begin to say, oh my goodness, the God of the universe has entrusted me, who loves me, who believes in me with these resources, therefore, I can leverage them in the way he wants. Do you see, identity is everything. And that's why when Peter says, when I think about you living in the larger culture as Christians, I don't wanna tell you no more or do more. I wanna tell you, don't forget who you already are. And live out of that reality. Growing as a Christian means saying that there's only one voice in my head. 
and it's God's. It means looking yourself in the mirror and saying what's true of the person looking back at me is what God says. So that women's Bible study that you go to, which are amazing here, the whole point of that is that that sister in Christ would say to you, let me tell you all the great things God has already said are true of you, and let me help you to live out that reality. That's what it means to grow as a Christian. Because if you're here and you're not a Christian, I know we think of religion as knowing and doing and somehow starting at the bottom of the mountain, and if you know enough and you do enough, you climb to the top of the mountain, but that is the opposite of Christianity. Christianity says that the God at the top of the mountain loved us so much he came down to the bottom of the mountain and lived in our place and died in our place and rose from the dead and said, if you grab hold of me, I'll take you right back up. I live there. And that's our identity. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, but you have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters in Christ, look at me. And then I got to move on. I'm getting in trouble for sermon length. So I got to move on. But listen, listen, that's, that is why, that is why Paul tells you you don't have to get to the top of the mountain. You're already there. You're already there. That's your identity. Let me get to my second point, which is to say, why does that matter? I think there's a temptation when we think about growth to individualize it. To say, yeah, I know I need to grow. I know I need to step into my identity in Jesus and live out. I know, I know. But, but, but if I don't, the only one I'm really hurting is me. But I got to tell you, that's not true. That's not true. That'd be like me saying, I know I need to get in shape. I know I, know I need to make sure that cardiovascularly I'm in a good state. But if I don't do that, at 40 I have a heart attack, hey, I'm only hurting me. I don't think my wife would agree with that. I don't think my children would agree with that. In the same way, listen, your growth matters. Two ways, by the way, you see that here in this passage. The first is in verse nine. Look at all the identities he says are true of us as Christians. What you're gonna notice is that every one of them is communal, it's corporate. Look at what he says. But you are a chosen race. You cannot be a race of people unto yourself. A royal priesthood, not a priest or a priestess, but a priesthood. A holy nation, a people, not a person for his own possession, but a people for his own possession. In verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners, plural language, as exiles, plural language. The emphasis here is that our growth matters to each other. Now, let me give you a visceral analogy of this. I want you just to imagine that tomorrow, all of us here and watching online and over in East service boarded an airplane or two, and we flew to Saudi Arabia, and we decided for the rest of our lives, we're going to live in Saudi Arabia. Now, once we got there, the very first thing we would realize is that we don't have a lot in common with the people of Saudi Arabia. We don't speak their language. We don't live out their culture. So what would happen is we would either have to try to act like Saudi Arabians or, or we would have to begin to bind ourselves together. We would begin to live as Americans from Northeast Ohio who live in, in, in Saudi Arabia. And we, we would help each other, right? Because we'd say things like, I found the grocery store. I'll draw you a map. I learned three Arabic words. And I can tell you the second one, you do not want to say. 
right? We'd be, we'd be helping each other. We'd be sharing. We'd be teaching. We'd be learning because what we'd be saying is our identity is not Saudi Arabians. Our identity is Americans living in Saudi Arabia, and we need help to do that well. Friends, it's not any different when you think about what it means to believe that you are a son or daughter of God living in a culture that is antithetical to God. You cannot flourish without me, and I certainly cannot flourish without you. You can't help me find the grocery store if you don't know where it is. You can't help me learn Arabic if you're not learning any Arabic. Your growth matters to me because the more you live out your identity, the more I see the beauty of believing that what God said about you is true. The more you live out your identity, the more I understand and am challenged and encouraged as to what it means to be a man or to be a father or to be a husband believing these things are true of me. Your growth matters to everyone. By the way, not just inside the church, but outside the church. Right after he says in verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Look at what he says in verse 12. Here in verse 12, he says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, two things. One, he's just making the point that if we all moved to Saudi Arabia, all the Saudi Arabians would be watching us and they would be making a judgment on the American way of life based on whether or not we had a good community or a bad one. A healthy community or a poor one. They would be watching and going, hmm, I wonder what American life is really like. And he even says their, t their default setting is to hate it because it's different. So they're going to say, when they want to speak against you as evildoers, oh, those Christians, they're so weird. They, they do things differently. They, they tell their kids no. They, they, they pray. They, say, they ask for forgiveness from one another. They, right? As they say, that's weird. We don't like them. But here's what he says. Here's the second thing. He says, but inevitably, some of them will be won over. Some of them will say their identity and their values are better than mine. And not just won over. Look at what he says. They'll be won over so much so that on the day of judgment, they will be happy to see Jesus because of what they saw in you. In other words, they will become believers. They will be people who welcome the return of the king because of your growth and because of mine. Listen to me. I'm going to say something really, really challenging here. Okay? Spoiler. Prepare yourself. And I want you to know that I'm not just speaking to you. I'm speaking to myself. Listen, I know I look young, but I've been pastoring for 15 years. Been doing this for a long time. And I've seen an entire generation grow up in the church and, and grow out of the church, okay? So I'm as guilty of this as anybody, okay? This is not the young guy pointing at the older people. I, I am, I go first. But if what I understand Peter to say about our growth mattering is right, then here's what I'm telling you. When an entire generation of young people leave the church, it is because in the generation before them, they did not see an identity and a value system that was superior to the one that was offered to them by the world. When people are not showing up from our community at our church saying, I want to hear more about Jesus, the way, by the way, in Acts 2 last week, when they were adding to the number daily, when that's not happening, it is because they do not see anything in our identity and in our value system that would be compelling enough to make them rethink their own. 
It is not, as we say, young people, young people today, they just don't care anything about God. That's not true. That is not true. And also they actually know very little about God. They don't care for the way you and I live because we're just like everybody else. Peter says, begin to ask yourself, what does it mean that I'm a son of God? What does it mean that I'm a daughter of God? What does it mean that I'm a steward of these children? What does it mean that my marriage is a representation of the gospel? What does it mean that I manage God's money? What does it mean? Begin to live, live that out and here's what's gonna happen. People inside the church and outside the church will say what you are doing is so compelling that I want that identity, I want that value system. And literally on the day of judgment, he says, there will be people there because of your growth. It matters, it matters, it matters. And that leads me to my third point, which is to go, well then how does it happen? Because if you're telling me I gotta live out this identity and that people actually are affected by what I do, or what I don't do, well then how do I grow? And I'm so happy to tell you that it's two ways and they're wonderful. The first is that you grow in, Christian, in Christianity the same way you become a Christian, through grace. Through grace. I'll be keeping verse 10 in my back pocket. Let's look at it together. It's a wonderful verse. Look at what he says in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, what has made you a chosen race? What has made you a priesthood? What has made you a people for God's own possession? Did you become a Christian because of what you knew and because of what you did? No, you became a Christian because God wanted you to be one. You became a Christian because God showed you mercy, because God sent his son, because God's son died for you, because God gave you the gift of his Holy Spirit. And here's what I'm telling you, here's what Peter's saying. The same God who did all of that to make you a Christian is just as passionate about growing you as a Christian. The engine of becoming a Christian is God's grace. The engine of growing in Christianity is God's grace. Our hope of growing is that the God who gave us this identity desires passionately to grow us in this identity. It's not through our own effort, our own achievement. It's through his. And that leads me to my second point, which is then what do we have to do? Just stop resisting him. Stop believing what your parents said were true of you. Stop believing that inner monologue you're holding on to. Stop grading yourself on your past performance. Stop allowing the narrative of the culture to shape who you are. Run to God and say, this is what I believe. Your voice is the only one I need to hear. Who am I? What is true of me? What is my future? What is my present? What is my past? What's my story? Who am I according to you? And listen to him. Not to them, not to them, but to him. Let me end with this analogy. I think it's very helpful. You know, I, I did not really understand the power of identity until I had daughters. 
I have five kids, three daughters. And I have to say, this world is very hard for a woman, especially for a, a younger woman. There are so many voices for my daughters telling them, this is what you have to be to mean, you have to look this way, you have to act this way, you have to, so many, so many voices. And I feel like half the time as a dad, what I'm trying to do is just bat away those other voices, right? Try to point them to the right voice. You know, my daughter, Ava is 11. She's here on the front row. And I love Ava. She's very smart and she's a grinder. That's one of the things I love about her the most. She's a worker. So when she struggles in a subject in school, she'll get up at six o'clock in the morning, not because anyone made her to, just because she wants to, and give herself problems in that subject to get better. So I get up at 6.15 for coffee and she's there. I said, what did you, you forgot to do your homework? No, daddy, this is work I gave myself. I have to get better. I love it. I love it. I love it. A couple of years ago, she was struggling in, in math and math is hard, right? And she was sitting at the table and she was saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. And then she started saying things about herself. I'm stupid. I'm not good at math. I'll never be good at math. Now I know my daughter and you are not stupid and you are good at math. But in that moment, what did she need from me? For me to hover over her and go, you will know more math. I found a book of math problems at the local Christian bookstore written by a best-selling author and you are going to get better at math. No, I needed to hover over her and say, baby, you are not stupid. Don't say that. You are smart. I've seen you be smart. You're a hard worker. I believe in you. You will get this. This has nothing to do with my sermon, but listen, if you're a parent, particularly if you're a father of a daughter, then fight for her inner monologue. But listen, so many of us believe that if God were to hover over us as we try to live out the Christian life, that what he would be saying to us is, you need to know more. You need to do more. Peter says, actually, Christian growth is realizing that when God hovers over you, here's what he says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for my own possession. You're a son. You're a daughter. You can do this. Let me pray for us. Father God, it's... What a privilege it is to stand up here and say really amazing things about you, but I just say them. You make them true. What a good God you are. Jesus, that you have done everything necessary for us to be at the top of the mountain. Spirit, that you have made these things true in our hearts and in our minds. What a good God you are. Help us to believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.